0: Welcome to Not Another Baptist Podcast, a weekly podcast about what two knucklehead pastors in New Mexico are learning in the trenches of church revitalization. I'm Matt Hensley, the pastor of May Hill Baptist and managing editor for LifeWay Pastors.
1: And I'm Kyle Bierman, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Alamogordo, New Mexico, and director of replanter development for the North American Mission Board. Together, we have uh, 33 years combined ministry- experience um, and yet we're still trying to figure it all out so yeah
0: yeah this episode is sponsored by none other than southwestern baptist theological seminary the crown jewel of southern baptist seminaries we encourage you to visit swibits.edu after the show to learn more about a historical seminary standing firmly on the word of god developing passionate ambassadors of Jesus Christ through the Great Commission, and cooperating faithfully with Baptists across the globe as we beg Dr. Adam Greenway to grow
1: a beard. But what are we talking about today, Kyle? Well, today um, we are once again not talking about church revitalization. We wow. are, in fact, joined by not one, but two experts, real doctors on uh, and experts in Baptist history. So today we're joined uh, by Dr. Nathan Finn, who's the provost and the and the dean of the university faculty at uh, North Greenville University. And we're joined by Dr. Marvin Jones, uh, assistant professor of theology and church history at Louisiana College. So Matt, we, we joke about this a lot, but today we are way out of our league. And yes, uh, so, so I'm glad that we have a couple experts to to instruct us here. Yeah, well.
0: We'll get into that uh, in just a moment. But first, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, starting with Dr. Finn of the Finlings?
2: So I am Nathan Finn, and I am a doctor, but not the kind of doctor that helps people. Uh, instead, I'm one of those academic doctors. So I have been a Baptist for as long as I've been a Christian. Uh, I've been a Baptist for 21 years now, I've been a Christian for 21 years. Uh, and I love studying about our tradition of uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, so I was not Baptist born, and I wasn't Baptist bred, but when I die, I'll be Baptist dead.
0: Thanks, thanks <laughs> for fixing what my pastor would say uh, just about every Sunday as we wrapped up. But, uh, but yeah, and uh, Dr. Marvin Jones, why don't you tell us who you is and, and a little about yourself as well?
3: Hi, guys. I am Marvin Jones. I do teach at Louisiana College. I was born again in a Baptist church. I'm closer to being Baptist dead than Nathan is. Uh, unlike Nathan, I do try to help people with my Ph.D., but it doesn't always happen that way. Um, you guys said you were not in our league. Let me be honest. Nobody's in Nathan's league, but Nathan, he's superior, and I acknowledge that, and I just want to go on record there. Okay. <laughs> okay. But delighted to do the conference with you.
0: Wonderful. Well, we are looking forward to it. And the first thing, y'all both said that you were Baptist. You were not Baptist born. You were not Baptist bred. And uh, you you will be Baptist dead. And so I guess that begs the question, what is a Baptist? Why don't we start with you, Dr. Jones? We'll give you the chance to have the first word on this one.
3: All right. Well, thank you. I've I've been thinking about your question, and that's, that's a really good question. What is a Baptist? And the one thing I come up with is a commitment to the Scriptures, okay? And, and there's several corollaries to that, but primarily it is a commitment to biblical orthodoxy, getting back to the basics of the Bible. Out of that, of course, flows regenerate church membership, regeneration of the heart, believers' baptism, but in all of that, but at, at the essence, it is the lordship of Christ being uh, submitted to through the avenue of the scriptures.
0: OK, Dr. Finn.
2: Yeah, I would say something very similar to that. Um, I think I would just add that there are different types of Baptists. And I don't mean denominations, but I mean different types of individuals who are Baptists. There are some people who are Baptist by conditioning. Ah, uh, they've been raised Baptist. They don't know what that means, uh, but they know that they've always been one. And there are people who are Baptist by convenience. Uh, they go to a Baptist church. And then there are people who are Baptist by conviction. And that's what Dr. Jones and I really care about and what we're trying to form in students and pastors and and those are those people who are trying to uh, follow Christ as he's revealed his will in the scriptures about what a local church is in particular. And um, you know Baptists don't have. The market on orthodoxy in general, but we do honestly believe that we get closer to uh, New Testament ecclesiology than other groups, and if we didn't believe that, we'd be something besides Baptists. We'd want to go be a part of that group that is closer. Right. So, uh, so we do think that that's what the Baptists bring to the table, is uh, really following Christ, not just as believers, uh, but following Christ and his apostles in the pattern that they laid out for us uh, when it comes to what a church
1: is, what a church does, uh, what a church is about. Great. Well, well, for this one, we'll start with with Dr. Finn. So, um, some recent news, and and as we just saw the ACP reports uh, from last year that have been released, um, we know that our baptisms are are down quite a bit. Um, so, in what ways do you think a maybe a better understanding and a better practice? of Baptist distinctives could could maybe offset this trend and maybe even help us recover uh, some of those, some of those baptism numbers?
2: Well, I want to be clear and that I don't think recovering Baptist distinctives alone is going to help us uh, improve our baptism numbers. Um, I do think that that is a part of the mix, especially understanding uh, that baptism is for disciples. Baptism is for people who have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And so we should not baptize somebody unless that's the case. So the only, way, the only place where I really see that helping us with our baptism statistics is not a, it's not a positive sort of thing. It's a negative sort of thing. I think if we were serious about that, we would uh, baptize fewer people who were really, 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 really young kids. And I think we would baptize fewer people who have a very unclear testimony. Um, I think the larger reason of why our baptism statistics are in the state that they're in, uh, is because uh, either, A, we have lost our passion for intentional evangelism, or, B, uh, we may still be reaching people, but we've devalued the importance of baptism and said, eh, maybe we'll dunk them, maybe we won't. We're more interested in decisions than disciples, or whatever the case might be. Uh, So I'm all for healthy recovery of baptism. But I think that alone isn't going to lead to more baptisms. I think we've got to reach more lost people. And they've really got to be lost people. And we've really got to reach them. And then we've got to baptize them and uh, help them to grow in the faith.
3: Dr. Jones? Oh, I concur. Uh, there's not a thing there that I disagree with at all. I, I would add that um, I do think passion for evangelism is missing in our pulpits in our pastorates, in our staff, and honestly, even among our faculty at places. Uh, it's just something we have not emphasized over time. We've tried other methods for church growth, but the true method of church growth is evangelism via discipleship. I mean, that's that's the core issue. That, that's it right there. Uh, so if we recover that with the distinctives, I, we're on the right track. But we can set aside the distinctive and still do evangelism that that's that is the issue Um, and I'm gonna give an old statistic that we've all heard a thousand times but it is a true statistic the typical Southern Baptist Church truly has not baptized anyone in five years now I don't care about the number but that number represents evangelism and so if no one's being baptized no one's being evangelized and Nathan touched on a very sensitive point that I think needs to be correlated, reviewed, analyzed is that we are dangerously close to moving back to infant baptism. Now I don't mean that in the literal sense, but we are baptized, those we do baptize are right out of BBS. And I think we need to be careful there, okay, what we're doing with that. Uh, I, I share the same concerns. Yeah. And, and in look. Up.
2: go ahead. If I can play off of what Marvin just said, one of the concerns I've had for years is that we do a decent job of reaching our children and grandchildren who are already attending our churches. And, and praise God for that. I hope we reach every one of our children and grandchildren who are attending our churches. But I'm not sure how many lost, lost people over the age of 12 who aren't already attending our activities we're actually reaching. Uh, I'm not sure that we're baptizing even 50 or 60,000 people a year who are in that category. So I'm just not sure how much we're really reaching the lost and unchurched and unconnected so much as we're doing a decent job of reaching the lost who are among us already uh, by God's grace. Yeah.
3: right. right. I concur with that.
0: Yeah. And that takes us from, from today and the future, what we hope to see uh, let's move backwards a, a little bit. In light of that question, historically, has there been a time where Baptists grew numerically and spiritually, uh, per, perhaps because of some of these distinctives and because of some of the faithfulness of living out what Baptists believe? Dr. Jones?
3: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I want to reference a work that came out early 90s by two sociologists, uh, Rodney Fink and Roger Stark, and it's called *The Churching of America*. Now, it's an older work, and it's not a theological work. It is a uh, sociologist uh, review of um, of the development of uh, church life in America, and they make the case uh, that at one time Baptists took a hard hard stance against infant baptism in favor of regenerate church membership over and above the Methodists and the Presbyterians. And it really fed in their growth that they wanted to save people as members of their church. And so through a period of time, they took the, Baptists took the position that, okay, if you want to believe what you want to believe, that's fine, but this is who we are. We, we are uh, a people of the book. We believe the New Testament church should can uh, consists of regenerate church memberships, which means evidence of that would ev- be evident in the life. And therefore, if it's not, we default to church discipline. Okay. And so that time period that they studied um, back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, did prove that by adhering to Baptist identity, we could grow as long as we were not concerned about our reputation. We're more concerned about who we are as Baptists before the Lord. So I think the evidence is there that we could reclaim the passion of evangelism by embracing those distinctives and replot a course of who we are.
0: Yeah. Dr. Finn?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think whenever you look out through Baptist history, we have thrived the most whenever we have been clearest about our convictions, and whenever we have recognized that we are a, uh, a minority of conviction. I yeah. think when Baptists have struggled is whenever we have been mushy on our conviction, and, uh, and that's tricky these days because, of course, there are lots of people who are uh, what my president calls Baptish, but they're not Baptist with a capital B. Uh, but, you know, if you squint, they're basically Baptist theologically. So, uh, so, you know, we live in an unclear time, and uh, and then I think we live in a time where we really, really want to be a part of a thriving Christian majority that is an evidence of God's revival in our country, and uh, and, and there's a part of me that longs for that as well, but Baptists and baptist like Christians have thrived when they knew that they were different, when they right. were a counterculture that was following Jesus, and so whether it's All the early Baptist movements in North America and the UK and Holland and even places like Germany and Latin America uh, later on in history. Uh, If we look further back uh, in history with our cousins, the Anabaptists, I mean, I just think when Baptists like Christians have recognized that they're different and that's okay because they're different because they're trying to follow Jesus. Um, that's when we've been at our strongest and whenever we've really thrived both spiritually and seen uh, a lot of fruit in reaching people. It's whenever we try to be just like everybody else, comma, but the Baptist version uh, that we Mm -hmm. just kind of sputter along and we have a lot of influence, but uh, I don't know that we reach many people or reach as many people as we could.
0: Yeah. And uh, in, in a paper to kind of stay, stay with that a little bit in a paper that I wrote for, uh, Dr. Madison Grace's Baptist Heritage class, and, and he wanted me to say hello to you all and that he's grateful for y'all. Uh, but in that paper, I argued for religious freedom as a uh, Baptist distinctive. It's pretty easy to fight for our own. Uh, I've seen that as a, you know, as a youth pastor when when I had the opportunities to teach even Bible studies in a school, and the second that was you know, maybe challenged, then it was either going to be everybody gets to have one or nobody gets to have one. And and so that's sometimes what we have to wrestle, especially in our pluralistic uh, day. Uh, but why do y'all think it is or, or may not be important to continue to fight for religious freedom for all?
2: Well, I think it's super important, and I think that Baptists have, always cared about this principle for a couple of different reasons. I think on the one hand, uh, there's sort of a human flourishing common grace sort of argument, right? That, uh, that people just ought not to be killed because of their convictions about ultimate things. And, you know, and there have been, you know, our Anabaptist cousins have, have argued for that. Some of our Reformed friends have argued for that, but, but Baptists have been really consistent on that. Throughout our history, that just this is not something you kill people over, and people thrive and cultures thrive when they're not killing each other for being perceived heretics. So I think that there's this sort of human flourishing angle, and then I think that there's the mythological angle. Uh, as long as my next door neighbor has the right uh, to believe whatever crazy idea he believes, then at least theoretically, I have the right to tell him the true story of the whole world uh, and to share the gospel and. Uh, God willing, see him become a follower of Christ, and so Baptist has consistently yeah. argued. You know, it's not just a common good sort of thing, uh, but we're we are by protecting their freedom to be wrong, we are also protecting our freedom to be right and tell them that they're wrong, and uh, and it's about the freedom to proclaim the gospel. Yeah.
3: Doctor Jones, yeah, I want to pick up on something Nathan said because I don't want that to to be overlooked. It's key here. He, he is advocating um, missiological issues with religious freedom, and that is not to be overlooked. Um, in order to be able to express the gospel, the other person has to have the freedom to either accept or reject, her his you know, or her uh, preference. But if, if we deny religious freedom, then we deny to some extent our ability to present the gospel, and, and I don't think we need to overlook that. I think everyone in America or the world, just to be global, should have the right to worship as they see fit or not worship. With one caveat, I am not in favor of religious freedom for radicalized uh, groups that seek to harm society through their religion. And I'm not going to name names. I'm, any any religion can do that, even Baptists, as we've seen from certain churches. And so when you abuse that power, I do think freedom stops right there when you're harming people instead of dialoguing with them other than that yes we need to fight for that uh, issue if you're wondering what some of the noise is i'm outside of a coffee shop so you may get some extended noise here sorry about that
0: not a problem as long as you send us some coffee yeah
1: (laughs) right matt Matt and i spend large large amounts of our time at coffee shops as well so we extend grace (laughs) there to you dr jones um so, so now let's shift gears just a little bit and talk uh, the SBC specifically. Um, there are a lot of issues that, that we're dealing with right now. I mean, you know, as we're recording I can't this. Think of <laughs> any, I
0: can't think <laughs> of anything that we're dealing with.
1: You know, so, so as we record this, we're just, we're just a little over a week away from, from Birmingham. Um, and we, we know some of the issues that will be on the table. There, there could always be others that are, that are brought up in, in motions and everything. But in what ways do, do Baptist distinctives impact the SBC? And, and in what ways can Baptist Distinctives help us move forward as a convention of autonomous churches um, partnering together to see the gospel taken to every corner of the world? And so we'll start with you on, uh, with that one, Dr. Jones. How, how, can, um, how, do Baptist, how will Baptist Distinctives impact the SBC moving forward?
3: Well, it impacts it every time we take a vote. <laughs> um, you can have recommendations flowing from the top down which is the preferred method you know when we submit a resident uh, a resident i can't even get the word out today uh, when we submit a recommendation to be voted on maybe it comes through a committee to the floor but it is the messengers that vote on it and they're exercising their autonomy either to embrace it or to reject it and even if they embrace it what's embraced by the convention when it meets is not necessarily binding upon the local autonomy of the of the church as it gathers the next Sunday morning. And so the convention is a reflection, or at least should be a reflection, of the local Baptist church in action as it gathers together to cooperate with one another. Uh, but the fact that we gather together to cooperate means that we have something in common. Other than the program, we have a shared identity that I think defining who Baptist is, Nathan did an excellent job in uh, stating that there are some by conviction where he and I and you guys are. There are some who just attend a Baptist church. They would know it from uh, any church. And so I think the recovery of those identities would help us identify who we are as a people. Now, that being said, it's not necessarily lost, as perhaps I'm coming across too strong with, but it's not exactly celebrated either, and that's my concern about it, is who we are as Baptists and what we do under the Lordship of Christ that concerns me, that we're, we're just not fulfilling that in the way we have in the past.
2: Yeah, and I would add that it really starts with the pastors, and I think most of the pastors have reasonably healthy Baptist instincts. Um, it's more those instincts... Solidifying into firm convictions is is where we could stand to grow, and just when I think about the SBC, I mean, we we because of local church autonomy, because we have different regional subcultures represented in the SBC, we've got different sizes of churches, different settings for churches. Uh, I mean, we we are really diverse in the Southern Baptist Convention, and that diversity is something to rejoice about, but it can also, at times, lead to rivalry and balkanization and uh, unhealthy tendencies as well. And so something that I've been pushing for for several years is I think we need to clarify what it is that we're cooperating around. And and I don't just mean the bad to say the message 2000, but I do think that's true. But I mean, I I think we need some talking points. I mean, what is it that unites us? And I'll tell you what I think it ought to be. uh, I think it ought to be a, uh, a classically evangelical view of Scripture and salvation. And what I mean by that is just what all healthy evangelicals believe about Scripture and salvation. And then it ought to be a robustly Baptist view of, uh, of the church and that those, those are our core convictions. Now, I think that's what's summarized in The Baptist Faith in Message 2000. And then whenever you pair that to having the right priorities, uh, which for us collectively have historically been uh, the advance of the gospel here, there, and everywhere. And then to a lesser extent, though still important, a uh, kind of Christ-centered engagement with, uh, with the issues of the day, whatever those are. I mean, I, th- I think that's who we are when we're at our best, and that's what we ought to rally around. And that's not to say that there's no debate in any of those areas. There's debate in every one of those areas. But I think that's where we need to really drill down on it uh, uh, for a consensus. You know, what What is the scripture? What do we believe about the scripture? What do we believe about the basics of of the gospel and how someone gets saved and what it means to be a Christian? What is the Baptist view of the church? Why does the Great Commission matter? And then uh, how can we partner together uh, to push back cultural darkness, not just spiritual darkness, but uh, but cultural darkness? And again, some of those are easier to answer than others, but I think that the, the key to our cooperation lies in the degree to which we enjoy consensus in those
0: areas, and and I think that's one of the reason we see so much kind of, uh, uh, to use a theological term, you know, dumpster fire uh, ness in uh, Twitter and social media and so forth, is is because we at, at times have kind of lost sight, if if you will, of those those primary focuses uh, that that we want to you know, have the shared focus of of evangelism, the the shared realization that you, you know, I think all three or all four of us in here, to some degree or another, has a different soteriological uh, view. Uh, None of us are going to be exactly uh, the same, and also none of us are going to be uh, exactly uh, precise on each and every theological point, this side of uh, glory. And so there's room for, you know, gracious and respectful conversation but at the same time when we have those core things in mind and and what we are agreeing upon and you know the whole cliche of the big tent thing how we can cooperate together even when we disagree uh on on non-essential matters uh our our convention's going to be healthier for it
3: let me uh bring up one historical tidbit sorry i can't help myself (laughs) next week will be the 40th anniversary of the conservative resurgence. And, and I don't know if it's gonna be celebrated, highlighted, or any of that. I, I truly don't know the agenda that's on the convention. My concern that it's not is, that is such a hallmark and a defining point of who modern Southern Baptists are, at least as well as up to 15, 10, 10 to 15 years ago. But we're losing that uh, connectedness to that specific event in 1979 in Houston but that did define a generation of Baptists concerning the scriptures and how it worked out soteriologically, as Nathan has said, and even ecclesiological. I, I have been on a mission and I know Dr. Finn has, he and I have conversed about this, to try and keep that in the forefront of modern Baptist studies on some level. You know, we don't highlight it enough, but we don't, we don't disregard it, but it is being lost upon this current generation Without that event, we wouldn't even be having this podcast today. Uh, but there were our forefathers who, in the immediate sense, thought that it was such a, a, a passionate issue that we did need, need to take a turn toward that. And I've been on that same mission. And I know Nathan has to uh, to keep that in uh, the consciousness of Southern Baptist life at this point.
2: And, um, we, um, and so we live. We, I'm sorry, we live and we minister in what I sometimes call a post resurgence context. And that prefix, post, can mean a couple of different things. Post can mean uh, building upon and extending a vision, or post can mean kind of getting over and moving on from a vision. And we have to be very careful in the next 10 years that we mean post in the sense of extending and building upon and not in the sense of getting over and moving on from and i don't think there are very many people who self-consciously uh, want to get over and move on from but the uh, the temptation is there and and the less and less we tell the story uh the greater that temptation is going to be
1: and and to follow up for the record so i pulled up the uh, the program for uh, the sbc to see what what's there and um on Wednesday evening. So, so as we're getting ready to close the, the convention, um, there's the, the normal, the recognition of past presidents, which is a normal part of, uh, nor, of the, the uh, program, but there's also a time uh, to honor Joyce Rogers that, that Dr. Greer will be doing as well. And so, so yes, there will be some some looking back and reflecting on obviously Adrian, Adrian Rogers and his legacy in the conservative resurgence. Okay.
3: Glad to hear that glad to hear
0: that. Yeah, and uh, so so we've talked past, we've talked a little bit in the future, uh, so, something that can maybe uh, help or challenge, convict, uh, convince them they're wrong, whatever. <laughs> one one thing I want to highlight now is, is y'all's thoughts on how some churches have seemed to, uh, for lack of a better word, separate the ordinances a bit, whether it's by open communion, or allowing unscripturally baptized persons into uh, membership, where if if you're a Christian, come come on in. We don't care if you've been baptized. We don't care if you've been sprinkled. We don't care if you have uh, drank the Kool-Aid in, in Jonestown. We we will welcome anybody to the table, and we'll welcome anybody into the membership. And uh, just as, as an aside, I think it was uh, Dever, I'm not going to remember the quote that talks about uh, the the wrong view of having wide open uh, doors and uh, then a narrow exit where we'll bring in anybody, but it's hard to get them off the rolls, even if they're dead. And uh, I, I know I've had dead people on the rolls at churches I've served, uh, but that we need to flip it where it's a little harder to get into and, uh, and a little easier to get out of. So uh, thinking those through, whether it's open communion, closed communion, close communion, uh, open membership or, or whatever, where it's just open season, why is it problematic uh, that we as Baptists, aside from that I think the Baptist faith and message makes it pretty clear, uh, but aside from that, why is it problematic that just anybody and everybody can join our church regardless of baptism or regardless of beliefs and so forth? And we'll, we'll start it off with Dr. Jones.
3: Oh, wow. You got a can of worms here, man. <laughs> Uh, That's why we
0: waited to the end. We found that y'all all get along. We've showed that we can all get along. Now now we can kind of see and, and uh, open open Pandora's box a little.
3: I would venture to say, Nathan and I are pr- probably very close on this issue uh, with one another. I am closed communion, local church only, but I do practice close communion because I don't want to force my particular opinion on a church, but I do teach them that we are Baptistic with the preference on closed communion for the church only. And there's a couple of reasons why. Salvation is for the individual as administrated the Lord through the local church. So a person makes a profession of faith. We typically accept them right there, but we never stop to think about that the church has the responsibility of verifying that claim as best as we can. We're not saying they're not saved. We're just wanting to know how they were saved. So if a person comes to me and says, Brother Marvin, I've been praying, I've accepted the Lord, then I want to know how. Did you read a book? You know, did you do five steps or did you repent of your sins? And so we do validate how a person was saved. If it's consistent with the witness of Scripture, then baptism is administered by the church. Baptism thus leads to communion. They are in fellowship with the church or they're not. And so that leads to either close communion, another brother from another church who's visiting, or close communion, the church itself. That also leads to church discipline. I don't have the right to discipline Mayhill Baptist Church. That's not my call as a member of my church. However, do, does my church have the right to have a standard for itself under the Lordship of Christ with its membership? And some of that administration for discipline is done at the Lord's table. Hence, closed communion, or at least close communion. That is a far cry from where the typical Baptist church is, but that is our heritage. And what that record says and what that process says is that we value each person that Christ has brought into the fold. We we love them enough to hold them accountable, to help them with their struggles, to partake in their daily lives, to fellowship with them at the table, to engage in ministry, That whole issue there. When the door is wide open, there's no accountability. There's love in a greeting type. Glad you're here. Shake your hand. Sit down. I probably won't talk to you the rest of the week approach. But it's not genuine. It's not Christian fellowship. And so I think a strong recovery of the ordinances in the order that I've outlined them, salvation, baptism, Lord's Supper, uh, is healthy. And the other thing, About the Lord's Supper is not just for fellowship, although that's primarily it, but it's also a proclamation of the Lord's return. We're going to do this until He comes. We have this expectation that the Lord is coming to us. Um, I believe it's a built bodily return, Uh, and that's open for interpretation as well. But at least we're proclaiming His presence until He comes back to us. So I don't, I don't think you can just as easily dismiss that. I think we have to recover that specifically. Deborah is right. Uh, we can't open the door wide and close it later. Uh, we've got to have it narrow, and then, uh, you know, then we'll deal with the exit issue.
0: Dr.
2: You guys
3: still love you?
2: <laughs> so I you- am. I'm, so I'm going to disagree with my friend Dr. Jones on uh, local church only communion, but uh, but I absolutely positively <coughs> strongly agree with him. Uh, And I'm in print agreeing on this, uh, that the biblical pattern is uh, that salvation comes before baptism, which comes before membership in the Lord's Supper. And I deeply appreciate my friends, and I have many friends, who take an open communion position. Uh, They're doing so out of often good and godly motivation, uh, but it's not biblical. This is not the New Testament pattern, and I don't feel the freedom to differ from the New Testament pattern that you come to faith in Christ, you get baptized, and then you enjoy uh, the privileges of being a Christian, which include uh, both uh, church membership and the Lord's Supper. So I think that this is something that Baptists need to continue to hold on to. And there have always been open communion Baptists. Um, Yes. And there have often been open membership Baptists. Uh, but I think that Baptists have been at their healthiest whenever they've been uh, as close as possible to the New Testament pattern. Uh, and I think that the uh, New Testament pattern is that baptism is prerequisite to the Lord's Supper uh,
1: and the church membership.
0: Kyle, Kyle, what does First Alamo do? Uh,
1: we'll do close communion. So we are an um, Air Force community community. As you as you said, you know, we have folks that are Baptist by conviction, Baptist by convenience. Um so what we've learned is people will come um to to Alamogordo as part of the Air Force and will cert, I mean are, are looking just for a church. They're not they're not so much concerned with the denominational label, so many of them. And so what we've done is, is baptized uh believers can uh can take communion. You don't have to be you don't necessarily have to be a member, you don't have to be a Southern Baptist, um we'll say baptized believers.
0: Yeah, and Alamogordo there's also Baptist by courtesy, where they, they go and they visit first Alamo and uh they see their poor uh pastor there at the pub table and just say, you know, hey, I've 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 just got to do something to help this church. And so just out of courtesy, they they just join there, knowing that they'll only have to deal with it for a year and a half, then they can yeah, move That's on. right. That's right. Uh, but uh at at our church at Mayhill, uh we we practice uh close uh in, in the sense that any any scripturally baptized uh person may may take it. My preference is is closed. And uh there that, that's just at, at our point, two years and a couple of months in, that's that's not uh where I'm I'm tracking right now. And uh we've we've got a great group of folks that uh, that love Jesus and and uh I share the importance of uh the Lord's Supper and, and membership and, and we've got some that Uh, probably give more than our members and serve more than our members and so forth that uh, just have been uh, reticent to join and and probably won't join and and my my tenure here and and so forth. But uh, anyway, this is uh, one of those things, you know, to reiterate the the whole deal with with Dever is uh, I I don't agree with everything uh, with with Mark. Uh, However, I think this is one that they get very right uh, where I've gone to churches where there's people that are dead on the roll, There's people that have moved uh, at one church. Uh, we had some that were in Alaska and, and had moved there for good, sold everything. They're not coming back. And, uh, but by golly, we were not going to take them off that membership role. We even found out they had joined another church, but no, we couldn't take them off of our membership role. And so we might have, you know, 50 or 60 people there, Uh, But, you know, our membership was almost there with Bellevue. I mean, because it was half the cemetery was a member of that church. So uh, and uh, but anyway, that's that's one of those important conversations that uh, I'd hope that pastors listening in would really think through what you're communicating with uh, the Lord's Supper, with baptism and with your church membership role as a Baptist. Obviously, people outside of the SBC are going to have far different conclusions, uh, but uh, but really thinking through that as a pastor. Uh, Kyle?
1: So so final question for both of you. Um, we know there, there are a lot of resources out there on Baptist history, Baptist distinctives. If somebody was looking for one book, so this is what I'm going to ask from, from both of you guys, either it's something that you've contributed to or just a, just a resource that you know, um, what is the one book that you would suggest to pastors or even lay people uh, to, help, um, to help recover and review uh, Baptist distinctives? So we'll start with Dr. Finn.
2: So I wish that there was a one book for lay people. Uh, Marvin has not written that book yet, but uh, Uh but we we, we desperately, we desperately need a book. The closest thing we have to that is Al Moeller, Chuck Kelly and Richard Land uh, did kind of a practical commentary of the Baptist faith and message that LifeWay published uh, back in the early 2000s. And it was kind of a discipleship training curriculum. and, And it's helpful because it's a, It's an expositional workbook of the Baptist Faith and Message. But there's really not, though, kind of an accessible for lay people sort of, here's what it means to be a Baptist. Again, Marvin needs to write that. Um, But I would say that for pastors and for uh, the sort of thoughtful lay people who read things at a higher level than what's on the bestseller rack at uh, the artist formerly known as the Lifeway Bookstore, um, my personal favorite that I would recommend is Stan Norman's uh, book, The Baptist Way. Uh, I yeah. think it's a great kind of 175, 180-page introduction uh, to basic Baptist beliefs. I've required it uh, in uh, many, many, many classes uh, for seminary students over the years, and have recommended it to pastors hither and yon. And again, I don't think I don't think the cookies are quite so low. That uh that you would give it to a random Sunday school teacher, we still need that book, but I think it's probably the best kind of Baptist 101 book when it comes to Baptist identity uh, to give the pastors and really thoughtful lay leaders
3: okay Dr. Jones I certainly uh, advocate the Baptist Way great book um, for those who want who've read it and want to go a little bit more advanced, and this is certainly not for the layman. Um, is Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches by John Hammett. Now, it's it's a challenging book, and pastors really need to read it. It's been uh, re-released uh, here recently. Uh, but it, it covers the bases, and it gives you food for thought at a, at a, little, bit, uh, a little bit higher level of research. For historical value, if we want to know where Baptist came from, Nathan did write the book uh The Baptist Story, uh, him, Michael Haken, uh, Anthony Shute, really concise, laid out well who we are, what we're doing, where we might be going even. Uh, so to give a historical perspective, I would highly recommend that. But as far as uh, oh, contemporary uh, issues and who we are now, The Baptist Waste is where we start. I agree with that. And then go to uh, Hammett's work.
0: Wonderful, and uh, well, as we prepare to wrap up, allow us to give our uh, recommendation and also our uh, plug, since we're contractually obligated to do so, uh, to the Christian Standard uh, Bible. One of the neat things uh, about church history, Baptist history, our heritage is finding ourselves in kind of that that long line of uh, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who who we kind of get to stand on their shoulders. Uh, today because Christianity's roots roots does in fact run deep in the uh, ancient faith study Bible by the Christian standard uh, Bible is a great option. Uh, if you also want to kind of see some of those historical looks at the scriptures, you've got stuff from Tertullian or Clement of Alexandria, Ambrose of Milan, uh, James Milton Carroll. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, it, uh, it has some great uh, in, in instruction, instruction, Study notes. Uh, some of our friends have written some great articles uh, in there. But uh, Kyle and I both love the CSB for its blend of readability and accuracy. So, uh, I've been practicing, Kyle, just for you That's uh, and uh, would encourage you to check out CSBible.com. We're going to find the recommendations from Dr. Finn and Dr. Uh, Jones to put in the show notes for you, and uh, and then maybe some of our own, but we are glad that you took the time uh, to listen in today. We are grateful for uh, Dr. Finn and Dr. Jones sitting down with us, separated by thousands of miles, and hopefully we'll get to see each other and Birmingham uh, and uh, but we're grateful that you took the time to listen in and if you have not be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found you can visit us online at notanotherbaptistpodcast.com or on Facebook under our name or on Twitter at nab underscore podcast and since we all probably have coffee at least near us uh, today Kyle why don't you send us out with our uh, little outro ditty? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, until next week, may your coffee be as black as night and as bold as the gospel you (laughs) declare.
0: Amen. Thank you, Dr. Finn. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening in. Have a great day.